0: Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippey. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have.
1: What is up on a Thursday? I am Brian Scott Rippy, Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. We've got an interesting show for you today. I was kind of between posting a show yesterday and today, and uh, I'm glad in hindsight I held off a little bit. It's been a little bit of a crazy day in the news cycle regarding Lane Kiffin and Auburn and the Tigers courtship of Lane Kiffin to become the next head coach of their football program. I talked to Chase Parham for about 45 minutes about where all this is headed, not necessarily specifically where he thinks this is going from a Lane Kiffin to Auburn perspective, but what these jobs are, the role in NIL and keeping coaches and making your job attractive, and then also keeping them once they're there and what that becomes in the next couple of years of college athletics is this weird ecosystem continues to try to find a way to level out after about two years of utter chaos. So got into a lot of that, what 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 makes for a good job, how much better the Auburn job actually is, what a good job consists of in the modern era, and a bunch of other stuff. So, oh, and then we'll get to Ryan Buchanan after that, which is my original Wednesday show, but hey, we'll just pair them all together. But before we get to that, though, I want to remind you, that the podcast is brought to you by Ray Stevens of Square Real Estate. Ray is a licensed real estate agent based in Oxford who can help you buy or sell a home, whether it's a two bedroom condo or your five bedroom townhome. Whatever it is, just give him a call. He will give you options in your price range. He takes pride in providing individual service to each and every one of his customers and helping them find homes that they will cherish for forever. It's a great time to be an Ole Miss fan. Oh, you know, two days ago, might have. Ole Miss is 10 and two. They're good at football, or excuse me, eight and two. They're good at football. You know, no better time to have your own uh, getaway in Oxford. Maybe you're looking for that two bedroom condo, tired of paying for overpriced hotel rooms or staying at friends places and want to place of your own. Give Ray a call. He'll help you find a place that's awesome and within your price range as well. Maybe you're looking to sell a home, go from one condo to another. Maybe you live in Oxford, wanting to put the house on the market. That can be difficult. Ray takes the hassle away from that. You can also provide you options in finding your next home. All you have to do is give him a call at 601 624 4824, old miss guy loves doing business with old miss people. I wouldn't send you to someone I don't trust. Please give him a call if you're in the moat in the market to buy or sell a home or condo. 601 624 4824. Tell him I sent you and he will get you all set up and squared away. Broker number is 662 832 Podcast is also brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked that the world's best gambling handicapping website. The inventors of the SkyBox Matrix interval—an advanced modeling mechanism—that has helped propel SkyBox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. SkyBox raking it in on NFL this year, over 60% on that, and college. Stop paying the bookie. You want to be paying him, and having you ask where your supplementary income is coming from. All you have to do is go online, go to SkyBoxSportsPicks.com, find a picks package that fits your price range. You can go all sports, you can go specific sport, college, NFL. Try for a day, a week, a month, whatever. I'd recommend going with the year-long all-access pass. It will pay for itself and then some. And boom, you're all of a sudden better equipped to profit than you were five minutes before signing up for Skybox. They'll send you their picks, a nice little color-coded spreadsheet, organized by unit, what they like most, what they uh, kind of advise. It's basically a menu. It's basically a playbook to make money. They're the only way to profit in the long run. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. College basketball, their bread and butter that they absolutely murder Every year, I cannot overstate that or, uh, enough. It's not possible to overstate how good they are at college basketball. That's coming up. No better time to sign up right now. SkyboxSportsPicks.com. Use the promo code Rippy R-I-P-P-E-E, and that'll get you 20% off any purchase. All right, here is Chase Parham on good jobs, bad jobs, Ole Miss, Lane Kiffin, and Auburn. All right, we're now welcome on Chase Parham. I wouldn't call this an emergency pod. I did ask you this to do this yesterday, plan for today. Um, I probably wouldn't have had I known the morning was going to go the way it was. Because we sit here late on a Thursday afternoon. Um, we plan to talk about some of like what jobs are in the modern era, but just uh high level terms. What's what's the day been like? Just a casual day at Rebel Grove. Yeah, something like that. You know, it's it's
0: silly season is probably not the right word. We always describe this as as that, but you know, it's a it's a frustrating deal on on, on a couple different levels because. A, there's still games to be played. Um, Ole this plays Arkansas, and as we're recording this, just over 48 hours, something like that, and uh 51 hours. And you're trying to focus on that to the point that you can or to, that your job requires, but obviously there's a much bigger story going on right now, Lane Kiffin, Auburn. And really, though, this is not – what is funny about this story to me is that it's not as much about Auburn. I mean, it is from the standpoint of Lane Kiffin and very likely could get an offer and have a chance to go to Auburn and could be leaving for Auburn to be their next head coach. I don't know who knows, but this is about Ole Miss maximizing its ability to recruit and run its program in the modern era. That is 2022. Cause frankly, modern era today is different than modern era, even a couple, a, a couple years ago. Um, you know, NIL has been a topic all day with the ways that they're marketing to Ole Miss fans, the way that they're trying to fix some of the deficiencies that they knew about through the uh, the Grove Collective, and ways that fans and donors can can interact and help recruit players and all these things. I mean, it's it's more of I take a step back, and I know I'm rambling, but I'm 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 a little out of it right now. Um, I take a step back, and the craziest part is just where we are as a sport currently that. What The conversation we're having is regarding a head coach potentially jumping to a program that is, in most instances, if you're just really ranking them one spot higher, maybe from a pecking order in the division, and all because of what is essentially a football version of a political war chest that may or may not be bigger than another program's. Because you tweeted this yesterday, and I'm sure you'll get to this anyway, is nobody can prove any of these numbers. We are... We we're, we keep talking about NILs and how much they have to do this and this and look the proof's in the pudding you either sign high school kids or you don't and if you lose all of them then clearly you don't have the money that the the teams are that are signing all those high school kids but at the same time this isn't like everybody's opening up their tax returns or their their balance sheets and showing everybody what they got we don't know if it's four year deals or one year deals as far as how much you know how far that money's supposed to stretch there's so many unknowns that you can really just paint and tell your own story. Every school has the ability to just publicly go, nope, I got this, or I got this, or I got whatever. And the media is going to allow them to manipulate that into the truth. I mean, you look at what has harmed Ole Miss the most from a a marketability standpoint, from a pecking order standpoint, all this kind of stuff from a PR um, note, if you will. is Chris Lowe's tweet, or I guess interview with Ryan Brown, where he said Ole Miss had one-tenth of the – NIL power of Auburn. Well, A, he was being hyperbolic, but everybody took him clearly at his word. And then two, according to what? How? Says who? I mean, that's the craziest part of this, is that we are, I feel like we're all just on this big goose chase, and there's like a big... Puppeteer up here that's directing all of us to do whatever's next because let's be honest, none of this makes any sense, and we don't know half the time if we're if we're even talking about things that are accurate. If we're just really really breaking this thing this this thing down to brass tacks.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. That's kind of the first thing I wanted to get to was the actual nil piece of this and what jobs are in the modern era versus what they are now in this age of nil. Because I think I mean a lot of like the, I would say the internet discourse has shifted toward Auburn's better job, more history, tradition, all that stuff doesn't really matter. Um, it's it's what resources do you have available and how organized are you to compete in this new modern age that you said is a political war trust or whatever you called it. Same I mean in, in some ways it's like a salary cap and I think that's the way Lane Kiffin looks at it. I mean look at the way he's described Texas A&M in the recruiting class. He makes the luxury tax joke. In February it's clearly how coaches think about it. Lane's usually on the cutting edge of kind of how coaches think, pretty forward thinking guy. But it's the proof aspect of it that's interesting to me. And maybe it's part of being savvy and with it to where, I mean, I hate to do, like sound crass about this, but why hasn't all mislied? Why have they not called somebody and said, hey, we got 10 million bucks in NIL? And, you know, it's the same thing in media across the board. I mean, I got down the crypto rabbit hole yesterday trying to figure out what happened with that SBF and FTX <laughs> guy. And basically, he just said, like, here's what we're worth. And no one really questioned him on it. It's like, wow, look at this guy. Let's put him on the cover of Forbes and whatever else. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, someone finally decides to get into the balance sheets. And they're like, actually, he's not worth any of this. And that's pretty much, to do a lesser degree, what all of this stuff is. And the media continues to fall for it because they have someone that's connected to a program or an administration that says, hey, here's this shiny scoop. We're worth 15 million bucks. Boom, put it on the front page of ESPN or wherever. I'm not picking on ESPN, but just wherever. But like... I. At a certain point when a coach does take a job, and this isn't even necessarily specific to Lane and Auburn, how do you prove it? Like, do you just show them a bank account statement? Like, how do you – because if it is all nonsense, like just Lane to Auburn, for example, complete hypothetical, if Auburn is lying about what it is, right, would they at some point have to show him what the actual balance is before he signs a contract? Like, what does that actually look like, your best guess? I know you're not like a finance expert. I just wonder what that actually looks like because there's no way Lane is going off – or whoever else, let's just say Lane takes the Auburn and going off a report that it's $15 million. At some point, there has to be some sort of proof that the public doesn't get to see. What do you think that is?
0: I mean, sure. I mean, I think it is bank statements to some extent. I think it's whatever value in that way you're doing that. So, yeah, I'm, look, there's real numbers for every school. But, again, you still don't know the setup for those numbers. Take Texas a and for example. Let's just be really hyperbolic and go all the way to the biggest thing that we're aware of to make this simple. Yes, everybody keeps talking about, oh, $25 million, $30 million, whatever those things were. Well, Jimbo says This is a $30 million is- signing class. Okay, well, did that mean they were getting this right now, or does that mean over the course of their four years, like an NFL contract, this is how this is set up, and it's divvied out over once every four years, and you get this, and maybe it's front-loaded or back-loaded or whatever, and are they, are, are they going to do that, you know, day after day after – or year after year after year? I mean, you know what I mean? Like, it's one of those deals where – we don't even know enough information to take the dollar amount that's there and know really what we're talking about. So yeah, look, there's bank accounts or there's pledges. I mean, it's the coach will know because the coach has to know. But as far as the actual public, no, no, no. I mean, who, who, who the hell knows? I mean, you know, if Lane Kippen is looking at Auburn or Ole Miss or you know Georgia, West Tech, Jimmy Sexton's gonna be able to go to those schools and go. No, okay, so what does he really have to deal with? You want to show me some proof here, and then we go from there. From a fan standpoint, no, it's just all a bunch of bloviating, and you know what I mean.
1: I mean, there, there, there's, it's complete and utter PR from a fan standpoint. It is, and in a day and age where you're just like, why? Again, as we just talked about, you're incentivized to lie. Um, Not to get too off in the weeds with this, but it seems like Ole Miss took more of the exemplary cooperation route via Twitter um, on Wednesday night, where they just (laughs) kind of put a fact, a, a, a section of something that wasn't going out there public on Twitter, but one of the things I found fascinating about this stuff is nil became a big talking point at about three weeks ago. Again, it felt like where it Mississippi State and Ole Miss in particular were kind of you know going at a pissing match in some ways of like well they've got four thousand members and now we got five thousand members or three thousand whatever the number is. But if you've noticed with these bigger schools that are considered historically considered the haves, the A and M example, use Alabama. When is the last time you've seen anything related to an Alabama collective like openly? bragging about the number of memberships or the money right it seems to be the ones that are trying to play catch up a bit like publicly pushing some of their you know membership numbers and maybe that's just the way they have to do business because of the sheer shallow pockets in comparison to an AM in alabama that they're dealing with but what do you make of that that the old miss and state thing is more public than anything auburn's doing and i guess i actually package that in a real question what Did did I make this up or nine months ago did we hear that Auburn was behind on NIL and now they're all of a sudden at $15 million? I get that that could change at the drop of a hat, but what do you make of all that in schools electing not to be public versus being public about it?
0: Well, yeah, I think there is some pecking order advancement. I think schools are using it as recruiting tools because, frankly, when you have those numbers out public like that, the players themselves are more interested in visiting those schools and getting the piece of the perceived pie or whatever that looks like. You know, Tennessee. It became so public how much they gave that quarterback, whatever his name is. I can't think it off the top of my head. Right. Um, you know, you've got, yeah, A&M that was blustering about how we've got the best NIL here and we're doing this. And that gave them great positive publicity from a school standpoint. It worked. But, no, you take a step back and Alabama's not doing that. Georgia's not doing that. I mean, those two just running their little machines and their robots and doing what they do and signing top classes and all that kind of stuff. I understand why the other schools are doing it. You know, you look at Auburn, and my best guess on Auburn, it's, a, it, it's an educated guess, but it's still some level of a guess, is that I think they were sabotaging Brian Horson. I think they were behind on what was actually available to recruits. But at the same time, I think they were still building a war chest. I think they were getting money in that they were kind of earmarking for the next guy. So I don't look – I don't know if it's in hand. I don't know if it's pledged. I don't know all the details from that standpoint. But, but I do feel like that's one of those deals where they were just not going to give Harson the ability to recruit to the level he needed to recruit from a Brian Harson standpoint, Auburn was very behind. But then once Harson was out and they're trying to build for the next guy, they're trying to turn those pledges into actual money in hand and they are being very, very vocal about the potential money that is available for for NIL because they're trying to take that step. I mean you know, look, I always make fun of them. I mean, we always kind of call them the the backup cult in the SEC outside of Texas A&M. But they've had a pretty rough existence for most of the last 16 years when Nick Saban has been at Tuscaloosa. At some point, that's going to make you go a little crazy. It's going to make you a little desperate. And when you get a little desperate, you do things like try to fire coaches with calls by making up stories and withholding NIL money to make sure a guy gets fired and then unleashing it on the next guy because you need him
1: to win. Yeah, it's it's wild place to be because another piece of this and this is the part that like fans don't necessarily want to hear and honestly I'm not necessarily sure it's a good thing for like the health of college football but is the fact that when you look at this Auburn job comparison to the Ole Miss job like does Auburn even if NIL didn't exist have quote unquote more resources yeah sure probably do they have better facilities yeah sure probably but they're also in the same backyard at Nick Saban and all that there's all these things to consider right what lane is built at Ole Miss what he would inherit at Auburn, though, I think you can flip a roster pretty quickly with the transfer portal. Hell, a first-year head coach just won the West when he hit the portal harder than Ole Miss um, in his first year. I would say that's probably an anomaly as opposed to the rule. But when you look at all these factors and what, like historically, what coaches would factor into job. Two years ago, all the all the craze was getting to nine million bucks, ten million bucks. The Jim Jimbo Fisher Godfather offer. As we sit here and record this, you know. Super Talk for Sports Talk Mississippi reported that Lane has an offer in hand to make him one of the top paid coaches in college football, blah, blah, blah. But isn't it kind of crazy that that doesn't really seem to matter? So I guess to package that into a question, with all this stuff going on and all these traditional factors, doesn't it seem like now that NIL is really the only thing that matters outside of, you know, having a functional facility and, you know, others tiny things? It's just crazy to think that Lane will probably make eight figures if he stays at Ole Miss next year, but that does not seem to be the trump card like it used to be
0: coaches are aware that it's such okay let's back up uh yeah is it is it the most important thing 100 now you know look I, I hate to say salary no longer matters because we're talking about relative natures here i mean if auburn offers lane kiffin 10.1 or 9.8 over eight years and ole miss offers him 9.62 over six years Okay, same thing. Like relative to Lane Kiffin's career earnings, you're not deciding on one over salary there. Now, some dude who's making three and a half, and you offer him seven, well, suddenly salary matters a lot to that cat because you just doubled his income. But no, what they're seeing with NIL, and they're they're able to kind of voice it publicly, even though they're not, is that the NIL is showing them how what their level of success is likely to be, how how easy the job is, how hard the job is. It's establishing pecking orders. But what's funny is we never did that with the part nobody said out loud when they were just doing illegal recruiting, and you still had the same setup and the same teams for the most part. But we didn't talk about it. Coaches kept harping on salary and all this other stuff with opportunities. Nil has made it more in vogue and more public to just discuss the the haves and have nots and the and the wheels and wants of uh, wants of schools as they as they get into this new era. So, yeah, it, it's one hundred percent the most important thing. Because you're not only recruiting, you're maintaining a roster. That's the other part of this that is so important right now is, you know, look, Ole Miss, as we're having this conversation and again, it's November 17th at 2.51 p.m. as we are talking right now. It's not even necessarily about, oh, well, if Lane leaves or if Lane stays, you're going to be able to recruit. or You're going to get this guy out of the portal. The number one name that I keep getting asked about is Quinshawn Judkins. Yep. He's already on the roster. But it's about where is he going to play next year? I mean, Neil dropped that bomb on the show this morning that in coaching circles, some people think they're going to allow portal kids to get waivers to potentially go into the portal a second time.
1: If their coach leaves? Is that the contention? Yes, if their coach leaves. I mean, my
0: God. I mean, if you're getting into that ballpark all of a sudden, I mean, look, this is not the conversation of the podcast we're doing. But to me, that might be the beginning of the end of college football because – at that point, you might as well allow trades is what I said this morning. I mean, that becomes – it becomes incapable and financially irresponsible, even relative to college athletics, which is saying something, to keep your roster together and to put another roster together for the for the upcoming seasons. I mean, if we're doing that, there's just no stability because it's where Lane was always wrong. He kept going, hey, this is like the NFL and free agency. No, it's not. In the NFL, you're locked into contracts. Once you actually go with the team, you're stuck for the two or three years or whatever is guaranteed and, and and required off that contract. College has become this weird pseudo fantasy world where they just want every kid wants the ability to move about every year as it as it, as it comes to to needed, and and that that makes no sense. You have to have some level of order here. So I hope that that does not come to fruition. I hope that's not true. But I'm, I'm getting off the point. The point is that. NIL is not just about recruiting future players. It's about your current players. And NIL is slowly becoming indicative to the overall health of your program.
1: Yeah, it is. And that's what leads me to the next question is, like, should we have seen this coming more? Because I felt like the conversation, as soon as the Auburn job opened, everyone knew Lane Kiffin would be a candidate. They'd be dumb not to make him an offer, at least try to go after him. You weighed the – what jobs does Saban, excuse me, does Kiffin value? Like, I know he probably covets the Alabama job or eventually another shot to go to the NFL and just, you know, going to Auburn and hip at that. And we talked about all these different things, like the state of the program at Ole Miss, what he's built, changing his image a little bit. But with the way he's talked about NIL from the jump, particularly as it pertains to Texas A&M, I mean, he was even making comments about it after they won the games, like best four and five stars you can offer. The luxury tax comment. the. Um, you know, um, payroll, free agency, all of those different things, the way he's talked about it, clearly it's something he values and thinks matters more than anything else. I just wonder in the initial parts of this conversation, do you think we got lost in stuff that doesn't ultimately end up mattering because he views this as, you know, something that's above all else and allows him to succeed immediately? NFL future, Alabama future, be damned. Like, should we have seen this coming more from – a mile away as opposed to getting bogged down in the other stuff. I know hindsight's twenty twenty, but just the way he talks about it, now looking back as this continues to develop, is fascinating to me. It's
0: where you would love to know what have happened last year. And again, this is not anti-Ole Miss or anything like that, but just in general, when we're talking about Lane Kiffin in a vacuum, if LSU or Florida really had wanted him with the first or second choice, if that had been real. You know what, what? How does that play out differently? Was he was he was he still content to stay in Oxford for another year, or would that have been a problem where he was you know at least potentially considering a jump at that point? You know, again, I don't know that he's going to Auburn today. I mean, he can still be Ole Miss's coach next season. That's not what I'm saying. But um, sure. I mean, Lane Kiffin, look, he wants to win. All coaches want to win. They're all competitive. He wants to win championships. He wants to go to a place that is striving to win championships or be in a place. Not that Ole Miss isn't that is striving to win championships, but his career aspirations are Alabama. It's, you know, a a program that is, he sees as this, you know, what this king of the sport in a lot of ways, because of Nick Saban and his time there or the NFL. I mean, he's a competitive guy. He was at the NFL as a head coach with the Raiders way too young. He wasn't ready. He bombed. There's parts of him that a fits his personality. He likes the more professional demeanor around things. He doesn't like the, the pomp and circumstance and all the crap that's around recruiting. He wants it to just be about production and contracts and benefits and let's go do our job every day. So the NFL suits Lane Kiffin really well in a lot of ways. Not that, you know, Ole Miss is a great fit for him too, but the NFL overall as a system is a great fit for him. And I, I do think you're right. I think it's one of those deals where he has these certain these certain aspirations for eventual challenges in his profession. And that's probably what we should be looking toward. You know, I, I made a point with – I guess I'd heard this week from somebody. I was talking to Neil about it this morning. It may have been on the podcast. In some ways, it's not just that Jimbo bugs him and he likes messing with Jimbo. It's that he's almost kind of making fun of Jimbo, that Jimbo gets all these players and has all these resources and still can't win football games. It, 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 I think it almost kind of bothers him. Like, you're getting all this crap and you still suck? Okay, well, I'm going to give it to you. And I'm going to make fun of you because you're, you're an idiot. I mean, I think there's a part of it from that standpoint. He doesn't like him, but he also really enjoys needling the fact that it makes no sense that Jimbo can't win with the with the war chest that he has available.
1: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right on that point, and it's kind of fascinating. Again, looking back, it's like clearly he doesn't like the guy, but you're right; he's probably just like, "Look at this clown." It's almost like if I had this job, look what I could do with it. And this clown's going four and eight or whatever the hell Texas A&M is about to go. As we kind of like, if you look at this from the NIL standpoint. I thought for what Ole Miss is, at least in the early stages, I'm talking seven months to a year ago, was actually fairly proactive with Liston and the Grove Collective and getting all of that together. But its it almost felt like to some degree, and this is not necessarily the fault of anyone or or directed anyone, but there's that next step. Now you have the organization to some degree. You're on paper. You're a seat at the table, whatever analogy you want to use. What do you do next? Because it does seem like there has been some sort of, lull in that regard maybe i'm speaking off base but there's just so many factors that like okay now you have this nil thing established okay you're raising a little bit of money what comes next because what is comes next is now they have someone running it full time and i don't know what went into that decision i'm not saying it's the right or the wrong one but as important as this is becoming don't you think there probably should have been a little bit more value placed on who is heading that up As opposed to just getting a full time guy in place, and I'm not saying they didn't think about it. I just wonder, like, as this continues to become more and more important, like, do more schools have full time guys, and like, should Ole Miss, like, is there more, is there different set of qualifications for that position? I'm just fascinated to like, just look back and try to figure out, like, did Ole Miss do anything wrong with the NIL thing? Because they went from I thought they were actually pretty good for what they were to eh, could they have done more? And I know hindsight's twenty twenty, but what do you like? How do you see the progression of that?
0: They got out ahead before most people, which is a great benefit. That's credit to William Liston with that. They needed somebody to really put together something that made sense, that gave avenues for donations, for name recognition, for a lot of different things, as well as also understanding the law, because you know, hindsight's 2020, as you said, at the time that it got started, nobody was really sure if the Institute of Blade was going to try to pop one of these entities over a lot of this stuff. So he he was instrumental in making sure they fit state law you got to give the uh, Mississippi state legislature a lot of credit for changing a lot of laws to make it real or, or creating laws that made it beneficial for NILs to be able to operate. And it's, it's a complicated question that you're asking because it's a couple different fold is you need employees. You need a system in place and an ecosystem in place, but you also can't take all your resources and your revenue to create those positions, Because then you don't have any money to pay the players. Like, you can't take all the money and then hire a bunch of staff. And, frankly, we saw this with the Grove Collective. I mean, listen, you know, if they've had a 10% fee, fans got pissed off about that. When hold on, if I'm giving you, I want it to go all to whatever. Well, okay, somebody's got to run this thing. I mean, it's one thing if it's just signing contracts and whatnot. Yeah, don't take 10%. But when you're talking literal legwork, And the amount of effort and work that goes into being a full-time employee to this and run it to the level that needs to bring in millions and millions of dollars a year, no, that requires full-time staff. That requires accountants. That requires fundraisers. That requires people that are going to have to get paid and get paid pretty well doing it. So yeah, you got to figure out where that happy medium is, how you put together the, the correct staff as much as the total staff, exactly the correct staff that does the jobs you needed. And then it also depends on how well or or not well you're working with the administration or the foundation of the school that you're a collective for. Because with the new rules, the schools can help. Now, look, the foundation for Ole Miss can promote the Grove Collective. They can help with mailing lists. They can help with contacts. They can go to meetings and fundraise. They just can't directly facilitate the exchange of payment into the Grove Collective. They cannot... Be the one that does the actual transaction. But they can do everything else. So, I mean, some of it also depends on how much help are you getting. And that's hard for the schools, too, because they have to have an NIL or nothing else matters. But at the same time, you can't just completely abandon your facility upgrades and your capital campaigns and all the things that you do as an athletic foundation. I mean, it's a it's a hell of a note, and it's not an easy answer for Walker and Denson Hollis and Keith Carter and
1: the, the the whole bunch in there inside their own tributaries. Wouldn't the devil's advocate that I don't even necessarily believe this. Wouldn't the devil's advocate to that be, well, it was run by non full-time people for years when it was under the table. And I get, it's a little bit of a different deal now, but just the different structures of it is fascinating to me. I was talking to our buddy, Antonio Morales and you know, he's like USC fans. I think are a little bit worried that like USC doesn't necessarily have like a great forward facing, like raising money collective. They just go get guys opportunities because the amount of business opportunities that come with Southern California, whereas like now Ole Miss seems like it's focused their efforts on fundraising where I mean, I'm not saying this is the right or wrong way to do this, but isn't there a path where you just let businesses handle it and let businesses sign guys? Like, do you not, not, do you need a collective, but do you focus more on that as opposed to just acquiring as much mass amount of money as possible, if that makes sense?
0: I mean, sure. The problem here is Mississippi just doesn't have the number of corporations to make that possible, That they're going to have to crowdsource. They're going to have to, you know, you get corporate dollars, you get big gifts. I mean, big gifts are still what move the needle here. I mean, I admire the more grassroots guerrilla efforts that are going to play. And look, that money counts, too. I mean, small businesses, that money counts. If they can give 5000 10000 15000 20000 that absolutely makes a difference in a lot of different ways that can be impactful. But it's really hard to 100% make that what you're doing. You still need the big gifts. You still need the capital campaigns. You need the big donors, even into a collective versus the foundation. But yeah, in a perfect world, you've got sponsors for multiple things. You've got a lot of businesses going on and you're running. Yeah. Cause that, that, that can kind of run itself, but I just don't know where Ole Miss or Mississippi state or frankly Auburn for that standpoint, I don't know where they fit on that, on that structure, but for a couple of reasons, one, businesses don't really like putting all their revenue into one school like that. Yeah. Unless it is very obvious. That's just who they are. And that's, that's they're they're a fan of the team and it is what it is. I mean, yeah you know, look, look at Mississippi. I mean, we've gone down the road with ceasefire multiple times as a potential advertiser, but they were very they've always been and I don't mean this negatively. I understand it's their business. They've always been a little hung up on you know we need, we need a Mississippi state equivalent. you know it, it's it's' let' we don't want to frustrate or or do anything to the other side. And I get that, but you're getting that in a lot of NILs and collectives as well. I mean, there's a lot of businesses that are less willing to what right or wrong because it's pretty much right now execute pay for play for college football players at one school versus another, or just in that game as well. I mean, while, you know, it's crazy to think, but you have a lot of people who were a lot more willing to give money individually when it was under the table than they are now when you have to actually announce that's what you're doing. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a different beast. I mean, you're getting a lot of positives and a lot of people that are more willing to do it now, but there's the other side of it. There's still people that would be much
1: more willing to do it when it went the other way. The last impossible question I'll throw at you before we kind of hit more ground level and then just get out of here is the, 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 whoever's running it, like, does this become an important position? And we've always thought about like fundraising and whatever capacity is more of a school and administration thing. But in five years, like, do people realize actually you need someone that the coach jobs with like complete hypothetical here. But like if a coach at a school doesn't like the guy heading up the collective, wouldn't that deter him from leaving outside of just an endless, like, you know, sea of funds? You know what I mean? Like, does that become something that the incoming coach has, and it's a revolving door of people? I'm just, I'm so fascinated by the kind of lack of, like, the unorganized infrastructure in terms of how this is kind of coming together as a whole. Not Ole Miss specific, but like, does it become something where a coach like has to jive with the guy, and he has input on who it is, versus just an administration? Of this is the guy who does this. You could make the argument that
0: the that in if this continues down its path now look, maybe there's regulations, maybe it gets gets cowed. maybe it gets pulled out, maybe it says something. I, I don't know the answer to that. But if it doesn't, and this thing just goes as is, you can make the argument, and maybe I'm crazy and maybe everybody would be slapping me right now going, you've lost your dang mind. I think that the head of the collective would be the most visible person, maybe outside of the athletic director, and in some instances almost as important. Yeah, I think that you're talking about, resources, the ability to have them, the ability to put them into certain places, somebody you can, you can get along with. I mean, because what you are at this point is you're a mix between athletics director and compliance officer because you have to get up against the lines of what's legal or what's doable or whatever, but not necessarily cross a couple of them. But you have to be fully in tune with what that coach is trying to do and work with them in that manner. And you're very public, very front facing, and you're a huge fundraiser for the school by proxy of the football program or the basketball program or whatever it is you're paying money to. So, no, I think you're talking about if this path continues, athletic director 1A and then 1B is whoever is running your collective or your foundation or whatever is funneling this money into the NIL.
1: Last point here is we kind of take this back to the ground level and wrap up is, does this – you've been around – I mean, I'm 27, but you've been around Ole Miss longer than I am. Sorry to call you old. But the uh, – The Does this feel like an important moment in Ole Miss football and in Ole Miss athletics to you? Because I've seen a lot of this sentiment shared on the board and Twitter as a whole. If Ole Miss loses a head coach, and it's not the same thing as the Tommy Tupperville, to a division rival because of its resources from an NIL standpoint, whether they can help that or not, that feels very demoralizing. I would imagine if you're sitting there as a fan, you'd be like, well, what is the point of any of this? Like, this this feels like a moment that could submit them in the pecking order, whereas if Lane Kiffin is the head coach at Ole Miss next year, even if he leaves afterwards for the NFL for another job, not this specific Auburn job in this moment, it feels like a gigantic win that, hey, we're here to play. Like, we can win. We can do all of these things. Whereas it feels very demoralizing from a fan standpoint of why am I giving, why am I doing any of this if we can't keep an elite coach and keep this going? Does this feel like a pretty important moment or an inflection point in the history of Ole Miss football and athletics as a whole to you? Nothing's ever as bad
0: or as good as you think. So I'm trying to be a little more level with it. But here's the deal. Um, yeah, 100%. I mean, to whatever extent we want to say it, you're you're exactly right. Because you have – Without question, the most popular head coach in Ole Miss football history since Johnny Vaught, and because of technology and the way that communication works in 2022, the most popular coach in Ole Miss history. They're, that 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 that's inarguable at this point. A coach who's two wins away in games he's favored in or will be favored in from winning 10 games in regular season back-to-back years after Ole Miss had never won 10 games in regular season before in program history. I get they play 12 instead of 11 or 10, but point still stands. Um. And somebody who brings you a level of relevance because of their own personality and profile that you have not had previously, even though Ole Miss is more of a national brand. People give it credit for being a lot of times. Hugh Freeze had Ole Miss as a national brand. So in all those reasons, yes, it, it is incredibly pivotal. And it's incredibly pivotal because next year they're going to be really good. they get got a lot of guys back. They've got a, a an elite running back back if, if, if he's still here. If Lane's here, they've got Dart, who's still learning and getting better by the day. I mean, the, the roster sets up. Now it, it's got holes, wide receivers, stuff. Don't get me wrong. But there's a lot of people to kind of hang your hat on. Where, well, this is going to be a top 10, top 12 team next year. And it's back-to-back years of winning where, to me, this matters. When you put that second year on top of that first year, You're no longer a cute story. You're just a team that wins a lot of freaking football games. I've talked about this all year. I've talked about it with you a good bit. But the more you do that, the more you beat it into the media's head. And, look, the media doesn't matter. We're worthless from that standpoint. But general public train of thought, that does matter because that bleeds into recruiting. Maybe that bleeds into some calls you get from officials. Let's just be completely honest here. When you expect to win and people expect you to win, you are treated differently and you have a different set of circumstances than when you're not. And you can build up tiers. You're not always stuck in the same tier. Now, it takes a little while. It's not immediate. And I get all Miss fans' frustrations and in some of these ways it hasn't happened yet. But Lane staying at least one more year and taking a job that's not Auburn, whenever that is, whether it's next year or in 10 years or whatnot, um, that's a totally different deal than losing your coach to a program that is maybe one click above you in program resources, but basically the same job in a lot of ways, and then a school is going through, from an athletic department standpoint, a total and utter train wreck of a situation from football. I mean, it's – I mean, they're warped. And if you if, – if the warp program in your division that has been scuffling to the point of I think they're like under 500 in their last 20 overall games – you know, if they come take your coach and your best player, yeah, it's incredibly demoralizing. I mean, it, it it makes you question everything. I mean, it's the it's the it's the team equivalent of what I said about letting portal guys and do trades, because it's what it's, it, at some point, what does it matter? You don't get attached to anything. Nothing nothing mm-hmm. counts anymore. So, Ole Miss as an institution, as a football program, is bigger than Lane Kiffin. Lane Kiffen has elevated their profile to where if Keith Carter does have a coaching search in a week or two, Ole Miss is a much sexier, much trendier, much more popular name than it was when Lane Kiffin was introduced in the pavilion that day. But at the same time, you got a really damn good situation going. And to to lose that right now from all the goodwill and all the ways that works, yeah, completely demoralizing should that come to fruition.
1: I've read with great interest to some comments about it was a mistake to make Kiffin the entire brand of your football program. And I don't I couldn't disagree with that piece of it more as we as it boils down to all these things Lanes has to consider outside of NIL. He is the brand at Ole Miss. The guy bought a dog and it basically became the school's mascot. He does whatever he wants and gets whatever he wants here, you know, within the reasonable realm of possibility of Ole Miss's ability to supply it. And I figure I think that's one of their their chips at the table at this point, whereas if all these things he's considering at Auburn, you know how that booster culture works. You know how that thing, the entire deal goes there. He won't be the brand and he won't get to do whatever he wants when he wants the kissing babies aspect of it, the showing up to fundraisers. There will be some semblance of that. Even if he wins a bunch of football games, that will rub people the wrong way. Maybe if he continues to win at an elite level, it doesn't matter. and They turn the blind, shul- uh, blind shoulder and it becomes more of a Saban-like situation. But you made a very salient point on the podcast earlier this week that I listened to on the way up from work. You said he has Saban-esque control over this program, which is true. It's not the same thing as Saban in Alabama. But I think what your point is is a good one, whereas I think that's an advantage for Ole Miss because I don't think he'll have that at Auburn. That is at least one small thing he has to weigh, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, there's no question whatsoever that his level of control at Ole Miss is higher than his level of control at Auburn. Period. End of story. Not even, not even worth mentioning. And that's something that is very important to Lane because of his, I guess, you know, ability or the way he sees himself. You know, his confidence in himself, but also just kind of the, his personality and the way he wants to operate. I mean, that matters too. Is that he simply does not want somebody with a hand on his shoulder all the time. He wants the ability to move about, to just run his program. It's, it's all like saving. Hey, when I need something, I'll ask you. Otherwise, barring something big, just kind of leave me alone. I mean, we can be in contact, but, you know, if I don't return your call for an hour, it's all right. I'm going to show up on Saturday, and I'm going to win a lot more games than I lose, and then that the point, that's what you're paying me for. Cool, sweet. All right, let me go. And, I mean, Keith's done that. Keith's done a really good job of trying to give Lane Kiffin everything that he wants. He stays out of the way. He helps him when he's there. He Lane knows that the phone's always on if he needs Keith for something. But no, this is not this booster culture like is at Auburn. I mean, that's been the funniest part of this. You've got multiple Auburn media members who have been like, "Oh no, it's it's a new day, and the the, the boosters are staying out of the way, and John Cohen's going to tell them where to stick it." Uh huh. Sure they are. Yeah, I'm I'm really going to believe that that Jimmy Rain's going to go. You know what? I'm going to step aside here. You guys can have it. I'm good. I'm no, I, I no longer even have an opinion, John, go ahead. Do what you like. Yeah. Come on. Give me a freaking break. So no, it, it's,
1: it should be something that Lane weighs very, very carefully. Like the lack of shame to report that after you just covered two, like chapters of a coup by boosters. is just enthralling to me. Last thing for you is this, has the NIL made this and more annoying to cover. Thank God. I don't do this stuff full time anymore. You look more tired than at any point you wrote the book currently as we sit here but like, I mean, if I have another buddy text me like for in the last two weeks, it's like heard they've already got a number and the deals in place. It's like, dude, that's not how this works. And you saw that on Sunday night and Monday night with basically this just Internet manufactured groundswell of and going to Auburn. Now, it seemed to materialize more in the day since, but not because of that. As you guys continue to try to dive in and dig through all this stuff, has the NIL aspect of it, the Internet stuff was already there. Has that made this thing harder and more annoying to cover?
0: Yeah, because it's just an extra element. I mean, it's multiple extra elements because it's everything, th- th- nothing has changed. All the stuff that was still you had to cover to, to a great extent is still present. But then, in addition to that, you've got future roster NIL, current roster NIL, program worth, salary, assistance, all this kind of stuff has changed the way you do things. And it's made the timeline so much bigger, too. Now we're talking about transfer portal. Even though there are windows now, it's year round. Hey, is this guy getting in? What about this guy? Well, Ole Miss recruited him out of high school. So now they're going to recruit him again in the portal, right? Or, you know, where's Barry and Brown going to go if he leaves Kentucky? It, it, it's all, it, it's, it's, it never stops. Now, look, it's good for business in a lot of ways because there's always something to talk about. I mean, I'm not even really complaining, but no, the, the, the job and what we do is so different than even 5'10". And I mean, it's stratospheres different from 15 years ago when I started or whenever that was. I mean, it's, it's, it's not even the same sport. You're talking about a situation where, NIL has made you have to understand the dynamics of the program, the environment, and just the overall health of everything you cover to a level that you never would have had to do before. It's exponentially changed things in a way that has made it harder, but in some ways, if you're able to penetrate it and get to the bottom of what it is you're covering, you kind of understand things a a little more as well. I mean, it actually, if you're if you can get to where you're good at it, it, it it helps you because you have a better understanding of why people are doing things and the way everything is operating inside the program that you cover.
1: You and Neil have been on top of this throughout, as you always have. Um, there's no better time to subscribe to RebelGrove.com. There's no place you'll get any better information. I encourage you to do it. In the spirit of this week, as we go our separate ways, you know, it just feels like the theme of the week. Can I have a raise?
0: Uh, sure. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. I'll give you a. Uh, let's see.
1: Zero point eight percent raise, something like that. Yeah, that good. Something like that. It, I more <laughs> that seems fair. That's negotiating one on one. I'm sticking around in Oxford for the serable future. He is Chase Parham. I appreciate the time as always, man. And uh stay tuned to this roller coaster ride. Appreciate it, bud. All right, that was Chase. Appreciate his time as always. Probably would not have asked him to do that when I did, uh had I known the day was gonna play out the way it did. But uh that was not an impromptu pod. We had, had that planned. We're gonna talk about some you know high-level stuff and then uh then this happened but i appreciate his time as always before we get to ryan buchanan i wanted to remind you the podcast is brought to you by lb's university avenue there in oxford go see greg if you're a rippy Rights subscriber that's RippyRights.substack.com. get a free newsletter for me a couple times a week and discounted meats right now it's a 16 ounce prime strip for 20 bucks at a five dollar pack of sausage just go show greg proof of subscription he'll get you set up with the rippy rights package and you'll be good to go then go find all your own favorites oxford is so lucky to have a great butcher shop like lb's greg wants to make your grilling experience great there's all kinds of different cuts i like the tri-tips filet burgers are also always awesome all kinds of delicious sausages fresh seafood if you're going to throw something on the grill this weekend stop by lb's you'll be better for it check him out lb's university avenue there in oxford all right here's ryan buchanan we recorded this on tuesday talk some old miss alabama but a lot of quarterback stuff and uh you know what to expect going into Arkansas and how the Rebels bounce back Because insignificant as that may seem in the current moment, but they do have a game this weekend. So here is Ryan Buchanan. All right, we now welcome on former Jackson Prep Ole Miss legend Ryan Buchanan uh, here back after Ole Miss' 30-24 to 24 defeat to Alabama. We'll get into that a little bit, some big picture stuff. How are you, my man? You were at the game this weekend, were you not? Uh, it's
2: really fun. But a uh, tough weekend and a tough loss to accept, I guess. But, yeah, I was there, and me mean Oxford was great. Just uh, was a bummer, man, a Saturday night.
1: Yeah, it was. And, uh, I mean, by all accounts, it was naturally a pretty dejected locker room. For Ole Miss, obviously we'll get into the quarterback angle in a second, but I do want to kind of maybe let's just start with that. You've been in this position before, um, whether it's 15 after Arkansas or obviously the 14 after the Laquan injury. Actually, yeah, I had Laquan on – the pod last week, courtesy of our guy, Michael Portner. I talked to him a little bit about that. When you have a game like this, when you have a team with, you know, pretty large expectations and you hit that point in the season, you know, only two, three teams are going to meet their expectations in terms of like tangible championship goals. When that finally does come to an end, particularly kind of in the fashion it did for Ole Miss this weekend, same case for you guys, how difficult is it for you to pick yourself back up off the mat and go prepare for another SEC opponent the next week?
2: i mean there'll be guys i I haven't looked at our you know injury list or anything and and see who's banged up but to come i mean just there's so much hype going into this game and and i guarantee you that every single offensive defensive player they know how well they played and to the point of controlling the game to the very end and let it slip away i mean it just it's not just having a loss but to lose in this fashion and to, to to be at one loss and then you have this game um and you had your destiny in front of you. So that uh, – it, it is tough. It's it's not easy at all. Um, but at the same time, I mean, look, these guys, as I always say, you get to play in front of, you know, 50,000-plus fans every week, um, wherever you play. And, you know, you want to go out, and you're giving everything to this team. You, you're bought into the program. You work out year-round. And you practice a lot for, you know, these 10, 12 weekends uh, of the year. So. Anyways, it's uh, it, it's it's going to be tough, but I think they'll rally back and then and, and hopefully come out for Arkansas. But, yeah, it's definitely not easy, and it's, it is kind of deflating after this.
1: Yeah, I mean, you heard Lane talk about it, too, even extending into Monday where he was pretty dejected in his post-game press conference on Saturday night. And though he didn't explicitly say it this way on Saturday, he kind of followed up with it on Monday where he's like, Yeah, look, I mean, we've turned the page. I've kind of required myself to turn the page. Those guys have to. It's part of my job as a leader to do it. But I think I was mostly just disappointed for the players to be that close in that moment to beat that program. Like, I kind of impressed upon these guys. You only get so many opportunities, if any opportunity, to do that and to not to do it was disappointing. And I thought it was very interesting to hear Lane talk like that because he doesn't really talk in, like, big picture sense um, very often in that regard, and so I think it was obviously very evident that you know this was a huge one for them. I know Lane puts Alabama on a pedestal. You I know, mean, for lack of a better phrase, this is his Super Bowl in a lot of ways. He really badly wants to beat that program. He Really badly wants to have a team to beat that program. And so I thought that was just an interesting aspect. This post game press conference, I would say, was different, or the post game reaction was different than most. As we dive into the game a little bit, same deal. Felt like it was like. Um, groundhog day again we were texting each other like first second quarter and you're like this is awesome right they're hitting those quick hitting routes they're going tempo you know they're moving it up and down the field they're having some success in the passing game and then it bogged down a little bit now this one is a little more understandable when you have the freaks on the other side of uh, the defense as you do with Alabama but just from an Ole Miss offensive standpoint whether it be quarterback centric kind of what did you see what did you like and what did you not not like
2: Look, it was positive. That was the best offensive play calling. Now, look, I'm talking from the thirty thousand foot level, not just. Yeah. I can't blame whatever we did on that last possession, our last four plays. I'm talking for the entire game how we came out. If you want to go up against Alabama, I mean, I learned this from playing. You better come out hot, and you better get ahead, and you have to stay ahead from that first snap. First, you know whether you, if you get the ball first, you got to put a touchdown um, on the board. And I uh, look, Lane elected not to kick that field goal. You know, people can say what they want. Hindsight is always twenty twenty. I think when you play a team like that, um, you got to have touchdowns. And we got – you know, we got down there pretty quick. Our offense is clicking. You know, as a coaching staff, at least watching our defense, we probably did not know that they would come out the way they did and would stop Alabama from getting across the 50-yard line three times in a row. I mean – if If you know that, yeah, you take the points. But we haven't seen that all year. Right. So I can't fault him for doing that, but I was excited, because this is a lot of what I've talked about on um, what I think fits our offense. And it's not just me. I mean, this is, I've had lunch with Javon Patterson this week, and he was a couple of years below me, he played underneath freeze and played in some big games as a, as a freshman sophomore while he was at old Miss. And look, when you can't block five seconds as a passing uh, offensive line, but you're really good at uh, run blocking. And they like blocking down and blocking downfield. You have the best uh, running back in the nation back there that fits you. Um, so what you do, you, you do go up-tempo. You have quick throws. You make favorable throws for Jackson. You don't make him sit back there and try to find a way out of a pocket on third and nine. I mean, we had we have to always be in third and one to four and in a manageable distance. Um, especially when you go up-tempo, you can't be set back like that. And we did it is what I'm saying. We, we, we had a lot – Alabama plays man coverage a lot. They'll have they'll have some type of cover one, and they're going to press you and play bump and run on your outside guys. So what do we do? I mean, we targeted that. And Jackson, I think, showed really well. He got away with, obviously, two picks. I could have turned that game completely differently. But his throws and back shoulder throws to, to Malik, uh, those aren't easy to make. They're, they're a little bit easier to make in the red zone. Uh, but he was putting that ball – on the outside shoulder, to where either he could get it or the side, or will be incomplete, and those are the throws that are favorable for him compared to a shallow cross across the middle. And you have to wait till a guy clears from the internal backers, and you got to see through the line. Obviously, does not do good in those situations. But when you have a boundary throw, that's a shorter distance, and they are giving you that cover one look. The line really they can kind of go downfield if they want. It could be an RPO, but I don't know if they're RPOs or not. I mean, they're pretty quick throws for the fact that. Lane was letting him throw those, and we had a pretty high completion of them. You're going to get a P.I. I I mean, not going to. You're going to get a P.I. incomplete, and, you you know, you you keep them honest. So, I love that we targeted that. It was favorable for Jackson. It was favorable for the offensive line, and that kept us ahead in the possession. Then we come back with a run, you know, with our great running offense and our scheme there. So, I think we balanced that really, really well um, and had a lot of those quick throws. And, you know, when we did take a shot, I feel like it was less predictable. Um, it was good play actions when we do take a shot on early in the possession. I think we had one, maybe a second and four. I mean, that's when your offense is open and we did a play action rollout. I can't remember if we completed or not, but I'm like, that's cool. I mean, that's great. It Might have been second and three, but if you're in third and manageable, those are the times to take shots and put up points against Bama. We did on some of those. Um, so it was called pretty well. I think Jackson showed his talent pretty well, but it, you know, there's a couple again that, it's crazy if you make the, that bad pick, especially when you lose momentum versus Alabama early when he threw two right to him and they dropped it. That can change a game. He got away with it and then kept playing better and learned from it. Um, obviously, it wasn't perfect, but he did what he did. He did what he needed to do to win that game, in my opinion. Uh, his runs were great, and Kippen called some great runs for him, but... Um, I was happy. I mean, I, I, it's hard for me to complain. I mean, if we ran what we did versus LSU kind of after the first quarter and what we did versus A&M and, and, in uh, Auburn, I, I probably would have been pretty frustrated if we went down, you know, seven to 24 or something like that, but we didn't, we jumped out ahead and we stayed ahead. We stayed aggressive to go up 17, seven. And I, I think every Ole Miss fan in America can agree that, um, you can never lose momentum versus Alabama when you were up, especially when you have Alabama at home and you're up. You can't have that fumble before half. And that's, and it doesn't just deflate us or or fans, et cetera. That makes, and Alabama's not a two loss year. You got to remember that. They're not undefeated right now competing for a national championship. You don't fumble that and you go up 24 7 before half. That changes that game completely. And, um, uh, you know I can't say one thing or another, but when your offense is clicking and you take the win out of their sales before half on a two loss Alabama team and you have them at home, there are things that you know I feel I would feel a little bit better about that game.
1: Yeah, you're right. And one of the things I wanted to get to you with which you covered there a little bit was I mean for the I mean it's 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 interesting but talking to you throughout the year to kind of try to see what you're seeing and what you're talking about as well, where this was felt like the most concentrated version of Ole Miss trying to pick on man coverage. I mean, there was a point in that game when I was rewatching the next day, for as much hit as uh, Gary Danielson takes, he was sitting there going, they don't believe eight can guard three right now. It's that freshman corner for Alabama, Terry and Arnold, and they were doing the back shoulder stuff and have a pretty good high uh, completion rate or success rate with it. I thought Malik Heath had a big game. I thought Dart played pretty well, particularly when it came to that too. They were doing a lot of that. And the outcome wasn't great, but I do think that was a positive in that. I mean, look, Malik Heath had a big-time game against a good team and a good defense. I, I don't really know since Elijah Moore how many times you can say that about an old Miss receiving receiver or receiving core as a whole. And Now, some of that was last year. Then they just not having the horses getting a little bit hurt. But they utilized the advantages they had on the outside, and it seemed like it worked in the favor of obviously the offense as a whole – but the quarterback as well. And so I thought that was a positive sign. And then you mentioned that I thought the turnover before halftime was obviously a seminal moment of that game. You're right. When you're playing an Alabama team, I mean, Alabama in particular, but like a really good team like that. I mean, I just remember sitting there thinking in the moment, this needs to be 17-7 at halftime at worst. Maybe you can break one, have a good drive in a truncated amount of time, go up 24 or 20-7. to But this needs to be a 10-point game at halftime at worst. And you have the fumble by Zach Evans. It knocks him out of the game. He gets concussed. I mean, it is what it is. He'd had fumbling issues in the past. I'm not about to sit there and tell them he has to hold on to the ball when he's, you know, seemingly almost knocked out cold. But it is what it is. It was a backbreaker. You mentioned that kind of deflating not only fans and uh, coaches or whoever else. Like, that has to be a little bit deflating to players, too, because – I remember sitting there thinking at halftime while I'm watching the band or whatever the hell's going on out, out front. It's like, man, they played that good of a half of football and they're only up three points and Alabama gets the ball back after halftime where it's a totally different deal. I, I mean, you just answered this part of the question, but, like, players can obviously sense that, too, in the halftime locker room, can they not?
2: Um, and, look, no one's thinking this is over, dude. Everyone still has got the dog fight in them coming out at half. I mean, you know where you're at, but – it, in Alabama, and I believe, I mean, he, they scored on that drive before half, correct?
1: Yeah, 17-14, and then Ole Miss holds them to a field goal. But it's 17-17 without Ole Miss really touching the ball again. All they did after the touchdown was come out and take knees because there's only a handful of seconds left. So, really, without them ever touching the ball, they get doubled up, and it's a tied game all of a sudden. Everything it was that equivalent, 32 minutes is now gone.
2: Equivalent to Jackson – I want to pick six there and them yeah. changing in the zone and you're in your, you know, really, because I mean, that's equivalent. It was, a, it, was a, it was a huge change of momentum and they got the touchdown and we didn't get any points. So that's about as equivalent as, as it, as it can be. But um, look, guys didn't give up, but I promise you you have a lot more swagger and confidence. If if you're up 22, seven um, at half versus Alabama, and you would have confidence in yourself to where, and not saying the guys don't have confidence, but it's like we're dogging them, we're winning on the outside. You're like, feeling a you lot play better. We're about loose to put Yeah, like like, dude, we're targeting them And every single cover one look. Let's go put up 42. And it's it's like a good, good swagger and confidence. I mean, we had that 2015. We're like, we're a better team. They don't stand a chance. We're gonna I mean we should have put up more, which we thought we did. I mean, we, you know, we didn't, but that was a mentality you had instead of almost questioning, man, like it's a three point game. I better not screw up this coverage and get beat deep yeah. or this game's over. You know, like you just it's a it's a different mentality. Um, so
1: yeah, I mean that that was that was definitely it. That was probably the biggest play of the game. And that's what happened toward the end of that game is when we talk about them getting bogged down. The offense didn't have the football very much in the second half, particularly in that third quarter, you know, Ole Miss. Alabama scores to make it 17 17 and Ole Miss goes down and has that drive 11 plays, 75 yards. They put it up to go 24 17, but then Alabama has almost a seven minute drive to come back down for the answer. And so now it's 24 24. Ole Miss has a quick three and out because Judkins' run gets blown up and they don't really have much success beyond like in a second and third and long situation beyond that. But, like, it's two possessions, right? Like, even when you're playing well offensively, you're going to have a bad possession where it's like, all right, got to punt it away a little bit. Maybe we'll get an opportunity here to where it's like, I don't know, maybe we're up four. We get it back to 11 or something like that. So, all of a sudden, the way the game played out, it's tied. All of a sudden, they have the ball in the fourth quarter, and you don't really feel like you've done, like, a lot badly as an offense. It's just the way the game played out. And that I think that kind of speaks to everything you're talking about. And then kind of along those lines, it's a whole different deal no matter how much success you're having on offense where you're up 10, pretty much the entire second quarter, you're up for most of the set, you know, the second quarter leading in the second half. Then all of a sudden in your third possession, which really felt like your second possession of the second half, it's a, it's a tie game. Like get the games called a little bit differently. It just feels different. Does it not? As opposed to what you're talking about when you're up 10 play
2: calling, you get tense on play calling, you get tense at playing. Um, Now, like, you know, Junkins as the running backs not gonna get tense you know you get that ball but you may second guess i mean i'm not saying jackson did or anything but like you're more cautious about making throws etc when you're kind of in that situation and you're losing momentum and they come back on you um so Which is it, just it's just a
1: natural part of any game in the fourth quarter underdog
2: thing right exactly i mean that's exactly what it is it's just it it Gosh, it's amazing to think of how that how that could have changed. Uh, look, I, I, it is it is what it is, but I think you just can't. You know, look, other games you can say that versus lower tier teams, but not when you have a lead versus Alabama since the first snap of the ball, and 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 you come out hot and you're at home. So that's why I was just saying how hard that was.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And then what we saw in the second half was something we've talked about a couple of times. As great as Judkins is. Just completely as an offense, when you don't have that second option as at, at running back, it just makes it hard no matter how good your first horse is. I forget who played next to Derrick Henry. Was it uh I can't remember what who it was, but point being they had a good second option. And then I mean, even on that final drive, I was watching it on TV on Sunday. Again, Danielson makes a good point where they get all the way down to like the 20-yard line. And he's sitting there going, Judkins is gassed, and they can't take him out of the game. And Ole Miss ended up calling a timeout, and he's like, this is actually good. Like, this will give him an opportunity to rest because they can't take him out of the game. I guess just kind of speak to the fatigue factor of a running game when it's a one-horse pony and a one-horse show because of injury or whatever versus having that second guy. Even if there's a huge drop-off between the first and the second guy, just having a viable second option as opposed to having to give Judkins the ball the entire half.
2: They have an, uh, an RB2 to fill in that gap one every four plays or after he pops a big play. I mean, if he, yeah. when Junkins pops one for 20 late in the fourth, he can barely catch a breath. Well, if you if he went, you know, he it's tough when he's gas. You sub in that other guy, someone not near as good as Zach. Right. But you can still keep your tempo is what I'm saying. And you have to keep tempo on a team versus Alabama. And I'm not faulting like our play calling. I mean, Junkins just gassed in the game because that went out after that hit. Um, but that's what you lose. That's I mean, when we had that last drive, then we had a short pass. He pops one, he pops another, and you have to call that timeout. You got you let them sub, you let them get fresh. Their D line's now fresh and getting their 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 calls on the defensive line and their front set. To where, you know, if they've studied a certain formation where we run certain plays off tackle or a counter and they get to see that, they're going to stop it. And, and I, I feel like you can avoid that when you had the RB2 for one just one to two plays. He'd come into pass block. I mean, yeah. that's the thing. I mean, you just popped a long run and you run it well. If you kept the tempo, then went play action off of that on first down to take a shot at the end zone or think like, that's the time to do it. He has that long run. Well, let's not slow down. Let's go play action here. Don't let them sub. They're in man coverage. We're doing 15-yard comeback. The DBs, know they cannot get beat, beat deep. If I, I would call maybe 10 to 12-yard comeback, sideline to sideline. Jackson has been hammering that all game. Malik's been hammering that all game. And you break that off, that's an e, but that's a quick play. I don't think that would be successful if we came out of a timeout and we did that. And we got them to get set. And, our line, and now we're slowing down and we're making a pass play. I'm talking something quick, first read, on the sideline, if they're giving you that man coverage, they're probably not going to switch out a man when they're on their heels like that after those first couple runs. But you didn't have that second run about to come in there to block for that throw. And, and look, you can say what it is. I'm not the offensive play calling, caller. Um, I'm not watching Alabama's defense every week. I try to reiterate that. I'm not trying to be a, act like I'm an offensive coordinator from the stands. But there, that's the difference of not having an RB2 to come in there and sub because you lose that momentum, you lose them on their heels, and, and then that's when we get in trouble, is when we try to pass and we try to drop back and go a three-, four-man route, we don't block as well for that, and we have to scramble. That, those are not the type of passes that we do well. We do well off a big-time run or a big-time pop play or we're going fast, or we, it's second and three, we do a play-action again. Kind of unexpected throws, more say, I guess, like that, than saying, hey, we're slowing down, we're in shotgun, we're going four wide, we don't block too well for that not off of subbing Alabama defensive line.
1: And to your point, like even like having to call the timeout versus just a pure substitution is a huge difference, Like right? They get down to the 20 or the 12 or whatever it is. If you can run Evans in there and even just allowing Alabama to sub instead of go to the sideline and talk about it and come back and all that makes a huge difference as well. Because even if they sub in a defensive line, you can pop him with Evans. And now it's second and three and everything is open to where because they didn't have that option – They have to go to a pass or not have to, but they went with a pass. And then all of a sudden it's second and 10 and honest to God. I mean, I don't know if you were probably somewhat the same way after dart and, uh, and uh, excuse me, Heath kind of had that mix up. Heath goes in Jackson throws it out. Like after that, where there's really no other option, I didn't feel confident they were going to get those next 10 yards because of what they had available to them. Like that just makes a massive difference
2: and ten is going that's a, that's a very we have never done well on that this year we would have had to uh, look I mean it's you can always say should have done this should have done that but at least knowing our offense we had to get some kind of yards on that second and ten I don't care if it was even Casey Kelly dragging underneath chipping the DN and we dump it off him for four yards I mean if we could have gotten five on, on that set if we could have been third and five our conversion rate in our playbook is is a lot more favorable to us than being a third and 10. And that that was the biggest mistake, not what we called them third and 10, but how we thought on that second and five, how we should get yards.
1: And then kind of the, the last thing on this is when you get down in that area, you talk about tempo and it's still being a factor, but when the field shrinks and it becomes second and 10, and you know, you got to gas Judkins and you've already kind of gone to that sideline, how much does that limit what you can do? Because you've talked about a couple of times this year, you mentioned earlier in this podcast, When it's a drop back three, four route thing, Dart has to look around the field, maybe a couple routes in the middle. It doesn't go as well. So when they're in that scenario, they've already tried the sideline thing. They can't really sub. There's not a huge threat to run. Like just from your vantage point or however you can describe it, how much more limited are you on those final three plays, second, third, and fourth down when the field is shrunken too?
2: I mean, it couldn't have been any kind of crossing route. He wouldn't have had time if we let a guy even a slot guy go from one hash to the other, he would not have had time to do that. Um we've kind of exhausted that with Malik to go our sideline throw. Um, it would have had to be it's just a two-man route and I mean just a classic five yard out on the inside, go on the outside by Malik, run off the D B on the outside and hit him on the outside shoulder. I mean, I don't know. I mean, there there are things like we had kind of our one of our go to plays under freeze for three or four years. It's the very first play I ever learned. Um it's a three by one set. Um, you, you, you know have a tight end as your third guy You're usually going to start off on leverage on the mic and he, you just kind of find that pocket I guess in a sense like it's kind of quick out but he doesn't really run out and just put on his outside shoulder but your strong safety is taking number two and, you, and your corners taking number. you know your outside x and you just kind of find that pocket right there it's one step throw it on the right shoulder get four or five yards in a sense and that's a pretty good go-to play that's and now look if they had like you know, cover a one-high look. You can throw the slant or whatever you wanted to on the backside. But that's something that's a pretty high percentage completion. It's not really a drop back. It's a one-stepper. It's a one-step, feel it, throw. And you just know that both – you just – you know, you can see pre-snap as a tight end lining up where I need to be. You can just time it up. I mean, that's kind of what you need to do because we're not going to go outside and we don't have time to r- run these guys downfield, not with our offensive line and where we're at and not having uh, someone to block in there. So that, you know, that's what I might've done if the threat, if the running threat wasn't there at the time with jumping gas.
1: Congrats to you. You are no longer a current sec athlete. So you can't be suspended or fined for your comments, but a lot of big talk about this week has been about officiating and without getting too far off in the weeds to it, because I do find it nauseating. A lot of the talk, I would say the rational talk has been around the sec's propensity to protect its big brands. Um, I mean, look, I'm not a conspiracy guy. I generally just believe it's widespread incompetence by guys making, you know, 10, 12 extra thousand bucks on a weekend. They're not full-time guys. But then you see stuff that happened on Saturday, and you're like, is this shit run by the mob? What's going on here? But, like, for as players, do you guys know that and sense that? Because Kiffin even got asked a question Monday, point blank, where Neil, credit to him, goes, I know you probably can't answer this, but I'm going to throw it at you anyway, about protecting big brands. You've been on both sides of it. And Lane just goes, I'm just going to leave it at that. I've been on both sides of it. And just kind of, like, smile, just basically his answer. As players, how cognizant are you of that, the officiating, that whole thing that can morph into a conspiracy? Do you all know, like, do you all sense that in a game at all?
2: To be honest, you don't sense it that much because you're running your own route, you're running your own play. You're Like, you don't see how bad it is. You'll be way more pissed off of the person that's watching <laughs> on his couch that has an up-close view of face masks. Like if you're running downfield, you're blocking in the trenches, you're whatever you're doing, you're watching the defense, you're you're doing something, and even if you're on the sideline, you can't see worth a damn. So like you can't even have a good view to be pissed off that much. Now if there was a blatant pass interference where it's like open right in front of the sideline, like you would probably be more about you know more mad about that. Like I mean shit, going back to the Arkansas, it makes me so mad. The face, Matt. I mean after the fourth and twenty-five but then the face mask of C.J. Johnson, which it, it might have been, yeah. like, you don't really – you can't – whether it was or not, like, I, you, can't, you can't see that. So it's hard to get as mad compared to watching it on TV or, you know, and unless they show on a Jumbotron, like, blatantly, but you're always so focused on the next play, you can't get mad at it unless you're watching on TV the next
1: day. How badly would it go for a player if he just walked, like, the side judge or the umpire and was like, roll tide, huh? I don't know. If I
0: played more
2: and it cost us a game – I wouldn't be surprised knowing myself. I I mean, it wouldn't be dog cussing him and making a scene, but it would be walk up next to him and just have, hey, can we have a candid conversation and say, you know, say, roll tight, huh? I mean, I mean, if it was toward the end of the (laughs) game, because I'm like, I don't want to piss him off too much in the fourth quarter. But, you know, like if it's toward the end of the game, you know, that kind of game's over. I mean, I would if I got a more opportunity to be on the field, I probably would have had a comment like that.
1: Back to what we talked about at the top, because this team now does have to turn the page. They're going to play an Arkansas team on Saturday night. And I would say in a lot of ways, it's had the year from health, defensive injuries. You had the weird, they're, I think the last team to lose to a and on that weird, the weird game from the KJ play to the way that game ended off the doink off the top of the upright. They're going to have to turn around and go play in a hostile environment. That is a tough place to play. Again, I know I asked you earlier, how tough it is to pick yourself back up off the mat, but for this team, This, like their tangible dreams, the championship aspirations they set are now gone. What do you have to do to go get yourself ready to play for that game? And then I package that into a different question that I asked earlier. I think it matters that if they could go 10 and 2 again and say they posted back to back 10 win regular seasons in the first time since before color TV and shit like that. Like, do players think about those intangible goals? Just like, how tough is it to go get ready to play to finish these final two games when your championship goals are now ripped from you?
2: You know, it's, look, it it's tough. It, it, it is tough. Um, but I, look, they're still going to go out and play. I mean, it, it's, it's, you start from coming to a school at a high school and, and, you know, not really, you know, on campus so much, like you're, you're involved with, the guys you play football with that like you live with in, in the dorms and stuff your freshman year. So if you're not gonna do it like you know you're gonna, you're gonna do it for your team and like that's what you do all the time. I mean you also guys have aspirations to get in the NFL too. I mean look so there's a, there are a lot of things to play for whether you're not whether you're competing for the West or not. but I, I just this is such a scary scary game. I, I don't even know how to explain it. I always thought it would be going to Fayetteville. But after seeing how they played LSU like that, and seeing that defensive line surprise everybody and get some sacks on the three-man front, and and then us coming off of this loss, and you know, hopefully the weather's not too bad. I mean, it's it, I mean it, I know it'll probably be cold, but I mean at the same time, I mean, look, it, it's the, the difference of when you're asking that question. How can guys get up? How can they come back from something like this? It's not going to be in the very first snap of the game, it's not going to be, uh, they're not going to be lazy at practice this week. It's going to be if they pop you in the mouth and you're down 14, yeah. zero. And and then all, if, if somebody, I don't know, knocking on wood, but some key player goes down. Right. And then, and then your next possession, you have a turnover and you're down. And you're down quick to a raging um, Arkansas fan base. When you know you already just lost, you know, the week before of your aspirations to claim the West. So it's as a whole team, that's, when you feel that if you come out and your offensive schemes working you get a turnover early i think you can avoid that but if you come out flat or you have a bad you know unfortunate turnover you have a special teams blunder that's when guys go at half if you're down arkansas like I mean, I remember guys on the sideline, like when I got in at 14, like, I mean, some offensive lines, like, I don't want to be anymore. anymore. Like, it's like miserable. the same scenario, raining, it's, it's cold. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, if it's like freezing rain and not even snowing and, you know, you're down 21 to three when you shouldn't be technically, you know, for what you're ranked and what your record reflects. But, um, you know, that was after we, we had some Laquan and that was after we, you know, we had some injuries and stuff, right? So, We don't, we don't, we're not in that position, but that's when you see that. That's when you see that at halftime and say, how much are we down? How much momentum are we behind? Stuff like that.
1: What's the skinny on cold weather? Like, how much does it actually affect? Who does it affect the most? I was actually, I was watching the Ole Miss press conferences this week. You know, Kiffin mentioned there's nothing that can help him. He hates cold weather. There's nothing he can do to not be cold. He mentioned even like standing on pieces like pieces of the stadium that were still showing the sun on the sideline. But when he gave like a serious answer, he's talking about like receivers. Their hands get cold. You can see receivers kind of. I he used the word shut down, but you know, kind of go into a shell a little bit. We'll keep it at quarterbacks though for now. Does cold weather is matter as much as like wind and other stuff? What is it like as a quarterback playing a cold weather game?
2: wind's a lot worse wind chill is, is, is pretty horrible um, i mean i don't know how you play for the chicago bears quite honestly it, it amazes me in, in december and january but um if, if it's wet so, wet and cold is what's tough that's what freezes your hands i mean that's that's what makes your hands just absolutely freeze up and you don't have a strong grip on it um once you, i mean look like you know if you've been on a sideline and you come in i mean you're not you don't know you're coming in I guess essentially like you're you're freezing it's like a fan it's like coming out of the stands hey you're going in (laughs) in 10 minutes or five minutes whatever you're going to get ready you know that's essentially what it is you're not warm or anything you don't get you got you're standing on the sideline um so that's obviously kind of tough and then when you come out of a break um when you come out if you've been on the sideline for a while you know it's kind of tough to get your legs going but once you have like two plays on the drive your, your adrenaline takes over you don't You don't feel it. I mean, and and your blood starts running. I mean, so once you have a couple run plays and you're driving, it's amazing how cold that can be. It's just, it's just, if you have rain, and like freezing rain, that just sticks, that gets on your hands. That's, that's what gets, I feel like, pretty tough.
1: Were you a glove guy? Like, what's the difference between throwing, like throwing with a, glove on your throwing hand I imagine that's more for rain but do some guys do that to keep warm what is like the glove situation particularly on the throwing hand for quarterbacks in cold or wet weather I don't think there's necessarily any sort of wet weather forecasted but I do think it will be cold and windy what is kind of the glove situation with QBs and what you like to do and did not
2: I being in the south I mean I I, it's too sticky I, I I don't know how you get rotation on your football personally with it um, I just I have no I have no idea how um but uh, again I've never practiced with it. I think uh, we tried it a couple times in practice maybe I mean, it, it it still sucked I mean I would personally change footballs, have more wax on a football like a newer football sucks I mean I don't know most quarterbacks like a worn in football because you have more stick to your hands that way I, I have no know how Chad did it I, I think that's one of his greatest Attributes as you could throw with the newer football, uh, that was still slick. And and I was like, that that I didn't really work for like Bo and me and most other guys, but I would have to have like a punter's ball almost that you could grip, maybe not as pumped up as much. You don't want something that's hard as a rock throwing that. So you can get your the index finger pressing. Up. So, yeah, you can have your you can have your uh index finger pressing into a little bit. It helps you get a little bit more grip on the ball. You may not get as much rotation, but you're gonna have a better grip to make a throw. So Definitely wouldn't want a completely pumped up new football that's impossible to personally throw when it's slick and rain and all that. But I would just have an older football and and, and hopefully a little bit take a little air out of it.
1: <laughs> the last piece of this the wind is what sucks, right? Like, can you describe? And I'm just sure you've had scenarios, whether it be practice, game, whatever. Like, throwing into the teeth of a wind or a crosswind of that, like, again, I always have heard that's affected more than cold weather. You confirmed that earlier. But, like, how bad does it suck and how much does wind actually affect the football when you're trying to do what you're trying to do out there?
2: Anything that you put uh, a trajectory on, I mean, with this speed of guys, you got to throw at least 45 yards and you throw it almost before they come out of a break, you just both aim at a spot on that hash for whatever hash they need to be at. And you just use the receivers. Again, you never really see them, especially with deep post to the field. You don't really catch them that much. You just know the in, in, internal timing in your head. Um, but when you have that win, and I've trained, I guess, quarterbacks and done lessons, they have, they, they will throw balls behind them. and it's, And you'll see, you know, imagine just a deeper route and guys stop for a second. It's almost like a jump ball. It's, Typically, if you're—that's when you're going into the wind—you just have to release it so much early. You cannot make that distance of fifty-five; it turns into forty-two, which means you got to anticipate. Uh, you got—sorry, my dog barked. Uh, you got to anticipate it a little bit earlier, like that. Um, so I—I I mean, you just got—you got it. Your short stuff, yeah, it's not in the air long enough. It's when you go down the sideline. You know, if you have a back shoulder, it needs to be at fifteen, not twenty-five you have a quick fade down the sideline it needs to be able a one step not a three and hitch footwork um you anything that you see step up in the pocket get out of the pocket set feet go deep guys are usually going to have to stop their routes and come back to it I, I, unless i mean you just can't do that i mean no matter how far you throw it it it, it cuts off 10 yards man if it's straight in your face like that
1: can it be comp to a golf shot at all uh, you know t- 10 yards
2: Uh Oh, my bad. 10 miles an hour uh, win. I, I, I don't know. Uh, but it's it affects it is all I'm saying.
1: Last thing I really have, particularly on the old Miss front, is obviously there's a bunch of stir up about the Kiffin to Auburn thing. We talked about this either pre-A&M or post-A&M, and not to be, like, too repetitive. But this is when it becomes, like, agent season, silly season and all that. I know we talked about this last time. You mentioned kind of the practice aspect of it. There was a weird internet deal on Sunday night that I didn't think was actually bred out of anything a substance, where all of a sudden, you know, you got some asshole from Barstool talking about, oh, Lane to Auburn, Lane to Auburn, or whatever. You guys are on social media. I, as much as you try to avoid it, I know it doesn't necessarily get addressed, but when it gets closer and closer to the end of the year and you have some other a coach with interest somewhere else or just rumors of shakeup, you can even internally on staff. How do you guys kind of block that out? Is it there just too much going on? Even for you as players, I know it's got to be somewhere in the back of your head. What do you, how do you think they're handling any of that this week?
2: Um, don't don't talk about it. No one's going to, I
1: mean,
2: you know, being as young as he is, not having spent three years with Lane or something to say, Hey, where are you going on this? You know, I got two games left in my career Well, he's young in his career. He found a great home underneath Lane. So, yeah, I mean, it, when you see something, I just talk, get on a message board or something on a message board gets posted to Twitter. Everyone's scrolling through Twitter and Instagram and come across it. Everything seems real. You know, this guy taught I have a good sources of Auburn. I heard Lane did this. He talked to him, and it's like, I mean, this it would you and they believe it just as much as fans. I mean, I'll be honest. I mean, I don't think guys are looking to find the latest stuff on a message board. I mean, sure. no one's looking for that. I'm just saying, if it comes across Steve. Yeah, you can't avoid it. There's no way of avoiding it. It's it's, it's just going to be there. I mean, I don't. So, uh, and again, it's if he's gone at practice uh, this week on Tuesday and Wednesday, now that's going to affect a lot. I mean, if he's over there on a meeting on the week of Arkansas on Wednesday, which is the biggest practice of the week to put in your place and and, and, and to put on pads, um, that will really affect it. I mean, that will if you don't see your head coach there.
1: I know this is 100% a hypothetical, but you said something that was really interesting where you're talking about Jackson being young in his career. You have an older player where he's got no dog in the fight because he's, like, done or whatever, and he has a real close relationship with the coach. Like, say you're a fifth-year senior at Ole Miss. You had been starting for three years. Say it's 2017 or whatever the hell it is. I don't know. And there's some freeze to Florida buzz. Again, all complete hypothetical. Would you be feel comfortable if you're just sitting in his office and being like, "What are you thinking here?" Like, do you think that could happen? Oh, I would. Oh, I mean, I, if I'm having my last year
2: and you've had a good year, and easily, it's just different. It, if you're just new to a coach, if you have a good history of him, like I think Matt could definitely ask him that. That's I mean, what I, I was him, thinking, hey, Coach. My if I'm on thought. the way out, I mean, I, I, if I'm on the way out, like whatever it is, you're going to the NFL or not? Yeah, I mean, I would, I would definitely approach him. I mean, you're the the quarterbacks are the closest guys to a head coach on a football team. If you have an offensive play caller, you know, head coach, uh, that's in every single meeting with you in most offensive staff meetings, and they're the ones that yell at you. <laughs> you know, like you are, you're, you're right next to them. You spend a lot of time with them, and they're the guys that recruit you out of high school. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, but it's different. Like if you have a lot of eligibility left, you're trying to figure out where to go. Maybe he does. Maybe he doesn't. I mean, if you're definitely older, that, but that would be an easy question to ask.
1: I can already see how that would play. out. It's like, well, Ryan, we're going to let God decide whether he wants us in games or whatever. It's yeah, like, Thanks. Great.
2: That's a, I think, I think that's a very good uh, guess right there, Brian
1: Scott. Before <laughs> we get out of here, just a couple of quick SEC thoughts. I'm fascinated by this state thing. I'm fascinated by the air raid and all that. I know we talked about it. And I probably brought it up too much this year. But I mean, I just, I was, I got home from the game. I'm watching that while well, I'm waiting on the post game. I'm watching. Uh, Georgia, and Mississippi State. And the way Mississippi State's defense played, it's like, damn, they have a shot in this game. They forced a couple of turnovers. But the way, like, the air raid works, it's just like it seems like the book is out on it against good defenses. Just as more and more as you continue watching, I guess this is the way I'll ask the question. Would you have liked to have played in an air raid scheme like that, the purest of the purest? Or would you have preferred to have more of a – I don't want to say normal – but air raid concepts with running stuff mixed in, like the whole five yards and find a guy and all that. Would you have enjoyed playing in that versus some other offense?
2: But no, if you're not winning games, and because yeah. you you you're, you're, you throw seven times in a row, you, you get you know you get used to your timing. Your timing is impeccable with that. You get a ton of completions, you get a ton of yards. And you play better because you're, you're fresh. You're not – you don't have, you know, two runs back-to-back back and then they're sitting on a pass. I mean, it's like, yeah, they're sitting on a pass every time, but our concepts are going to have one guy open no matter what, the way we draw this up. And you're rolling. You got confidence. like, yeah, like to be the best quarterback to get out of – get the best out of a quarterback and out of yourself, I think you should be an air raid. And I didn't watch that game, but they do have a good defense. And if you do have a good defense and then, all, you know, all of a sudden like you're air rating it and you don't, you don't take time off that clock and you go three and out one time, you're putting a lot on it. That, that defense on the field a lot and it can't reverse bigger teams. You can have a really good defense, but it's tough. If you're not scoring a lot of points because they're on that field a lot and they're not, you're not taking off anything on that clock. So that's, that's kind of the, you know, that's kind of the downfall of it. You know, again, they played great and had showed their good defense early, but you get one down.
1: Yeah, and that's the part you mentioned to it off the top is like the part that sounds like it might frustrate you the most is where you go back to the sideline. Where are in a lot of normal cases. And look, I'm not saying I think Leach is a good coach. I think what he's done is pretty revolutionary in college football. He's won a ton of games and what is all like what would otherwise be considered college football outpost. But do you think the most frustrating aspect would be like, no, the system is the system. Like we're not going to completely change what we're doing because this is just what we do. Is that kind of what you're getting at? That would be the frustrating piece of it
2: just you'd have to see if you win. if you're losing games because the games you aren't as successful right like your offense isn't you, they aren't running the coverages that you thought or one guy is yeah. playing better than you thought and so like that's going to happen when that does happen your defense is on the field a lot and they are not a top three SEC defense to hold you until you get going you're not taking off anything on that clock so like that is a part that could be frustrating is it fun to play in where everybody, everybody would want to play? Yes, because you're getting the best out of yourself. You're getting the best out of your career. You're showing your best attributes. It gives you the best position to show what you can do is what I'm saying. But I just – that's kind of like, you know, I, I would say if, if that is – if that comes to the point of like not winning football games, because your defense on the field a lot on the games you struggle, I guess, that's not working perfectly, that's kind of give or take. Because, you know, if you run off enough clock, you're moving the football but you don't put up points, listen to off clock and your defense – is fresh to last until you have one good play call. You know what I mean? You can keep that game closer until you have one big play call and you put up a point.
1: The last, last thing I had for you, because what I missed in this earlier before I bounced to Arkansas, Bryce Young, man. I mean, Kiffin seems to have the utmost praise for that kid, and rightfully so. And, like, I would say I'm a halfway keen football eye, but for someone that's played the position before, that seems like a dude keeping an otherwise like 7-5, and 8-4 and four football team pretty relevant in the national picture just – from what you saw Saturday or just him as a whole, I mean, I just had so many moments in that game, and it wasn't even huge stuff. There was a moment on, like, a second down where Ole Miss had him for a sack, but the kid just seemingly teleported, like, half a step to the right and then threw a dart to the sideline for seven yards, and all of a sudden Alabama's moving the change, from I'm like, holy shit. And then, of course, the third down throw toward the sideline, just I mean, this is a terrible way to ask it. How good is that kid?
2: Yeah, I love that. it's freakishly Good. I mean, you think you know if this thing of a pocket collapsing. There's no room to go, and he pulls a Houdini and he shows up yeah, outside the tackle. Real. And you're going how in the world? But also, he's not a pure dual threat quarterback like their backup, or or, or you know, like an Arkansas quarterback. He's a pro. He essentially can be a pro style when he wants to. That's that's what's amazing. But I, I would say, like the way I put it, if you you know we would do drills working out in college, you would have a hula hoop on the ground and you would run around it. I mean, just to see your, how quick he can get around circumference, I think he could have the quickest on the team in Alabama. Just the way he can spin, and, and that's how he can get out because that's his attribute. It may not be downfield speed, but it's which quarterbacks technically don't need it unless you need it, you know, in a certain offense. But the elusiveness factor is, is probably evidenced by trying to run around in a hula hoop with in, in, in a real tight area without going too wide. I think that's what he does really well. And then once he gets on the perimeter, he makes a smart decision. He's not throwing up across his body. He knows where he's putting the football, and he's accurate with it when he's on the run. So he does keep them alive. I mean, I think he definitely does.
1: What is the key to being accurate on the run? Because that's when you guys kind of footwork mechanics get out of whack, like you're running from your life from some just 280 pound behemoth. When a guy like that is so accurate on the run, how are they doing it versus guys that don't? Because this kind of gets into your quarterback instruction on that. Like, what is the key to being so just freakishly accurate while you're mobile and in not a normal passing form, for the lack of a better phrase? Yeah, it's
2: not just. And I believe this. I've seen you know, thousand lessons and a lot of hours on this. I've done it myself and what, you know, what, when on the run I can feel it in my body and then pass it on to other kids. It's look, when you're actually, when you do a play action, roll out, you know, play action to the left, reverse out, you're on the run, hit a 15 yard comeback to the field with no pressure. You do have to have that front shoulder closed before you release it. You really don't want to close, keep it open with an open chest, close the left shoulder, then throw it. You kind of want to have that torque already built up. You know, once you get in your running form, like you see him sink his hips, I'm going to start to close my left shoulder. Now I'm going. Like, as I'm kind of going. Biggest thing when you got to do on the run, and you'll see one some of these guys do it, and you really can't see it on TV, and really definitely going on the field. One, if you, have, if you don't have a backer flying up at you, just imagine the situation. You have pressure from the backside. You, have a, you know, you get out of a pocket, you have defense linemen on your back, on your heels, but there's no one technically about to light you up. In your face, right? And yeah, you see yeah. that a lot. No one's coming forward. If it does, you're tossing it. So it's typically gonna be at your back. What any man and look, you're not gonna have time to sprint for your life and then kind of close that left shoulder. I'm not saying those situations. I'm telling you, like you have the ball in one hand and you're escaping. If I can just take when I go close my shoulder and rip it, if I can take one step downhill, that's what I always teach. One step. I can be running flat down, you know, a white line. If I make that throw and I take my momentum, keeps going directly horizontal to the sideline, that ball will die. If I can run to the sideline, and as I go to wind up my right arm, I take one step with my left or right hand or You're running a lot. But as I wind up the throw, I take that one step downhill throw. And it happens so quick, but just that little bit of getting that momentum it's your velocity that you need almost pressure situations and guys do that better guys do that naturally i mean look some guys don't pick up on that they don't they don't do that to come out of high school it is you know you, i'll teach them that and some guys just and they do it athletically because they realize that works but if they don't do that that's kind of what i teach and you'll see guys like sprint to the sideline and as they go throw you take one step forward throw and that just gets your momentum into that ball and he does it is what i'm saying
1: how badly does it scramble your brain with left-handed quarterbacks where you have to talk about everything in reverse? Oh, my
2: god! We had a uh, – uh, at least in QB country, a Syrac- the Syracuse quarterback, I think it was like 2011. Um, he, every time we would do a drill, hey, let's pull our back foot, let's close our left shoulder. Well, no, let's pull our left foot, close our right shoulder. I mean, it's it's talking backwards an entire time. I, I ended up telling some kids, like, hey, uh, I, I learned to do it left-handed a good bit on a lot of my footwork, but um, – I was like, "You're I, they're they're raised whether they're playing baseball or whatever sport to watch a coach perform something right-handed, and they can translate it to their brain to go left-handed." But it it definitely is different.
1: Welcome to my completely lousy amateur golf career. I can just blame it on having to learn everything in reverse as a left-hander. This is a bit right, Buchanan man. Tremendous stuff as always. I really appreciate the time. Tom all at you next week, my friend. All right. That is our show. If You made this podcast a part or made it to the end. I appreciate you making this pod a part of your day. Thanks for listening. As always, we'll be back tomorrow with picks and an Arkansas preview, maybe an open uh, from me. If the situation with the head coaching deal Ole Miss has going on continues to develop, maybe not. I don't know. We may hold off till Monday or Sunday with Weldon. We'll just kind of see, but we will have another pod for you on Friday. Y'all have a good week.